I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. For the last several weeks, I've been observing world events, growing lawlessness in our culture, and noting the decline of the church in the United States and Europe during this last decade. Further, I have tried to see if there is a correlation between these events and how they fit into God's plan for history. In this video, I'd like to present the results of my biblical study. A few days ago, as my wife and I were out driving, we came to an intersection with a stop sign. I did a double take as we pulled up to it, for under the word stop, someone had handwritten and taped the emphatic word STUPID. I immediately understood that some driver had narrowly escaped an accident there because another driver had failed to obey the stop sign. In exasperation, he or she had taken action by adding that word stupid under the word stop. Like this frustrated driver, we have been noticing that people are ignoring stop signs more and more. As we drove on, our conversation revolved around a question that many are asking today. Why is lawlessness increasing in our culture? This past year has seen a significant number of American cities overrun by rioters and insurgents bent on destruction as well as the overthrow of authority and the rule of law. Radical agitators have stirred up mobs of easily led people by focusing their attention on incidents of social injustice that seemingly provide an excuse to become lawless and to destroy the lives and property of others, even the very businesses that supply their own basic needs. Lawlessness has increasingly become the spirit of our age. Why is it so prevalent today? Why is it permeating into nearly every nook of our culture, from the stop sign on the corner to the seat of our government? Although I have witnessed riots and lawlessness during several periods of my lifetime, today's disregard for law and order exceeds anything I have ever experienced. The Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s with race riots, anti-war demonstrations, sexual liberation, and the free spirit movement caused me to begin questioning what was behind the lawless rebellion and cultural changes that were altering society of that day. It was then that I first began to study biblical prophecy and understand God's foreordained plan for human history that is revealed in the Bible. I became excited as I found answers and comfort in God's word, for I began to see that God is in control of earthly events, even when things seem out of control from my perspective. I began to recognize the significance of God's decision to create human beings with the freedom to choose between good and evil, obedience or disobedience, loving him and accepting his offer of salvation through his son, or rejecting his offer of salvation. 
God does not desire to be loved and worshipped by robots who have been pre-programmed to do this. See, dictators force obedience through coercive and cruel measures. No, God draws us to himself through love, and he gives individuals the freedom to choose their own paths. When God gave his created beings, both angelic and human, the freedom to choose their own destinies, lawlessness and evil became a possibility. Now, God did not create lawlessness and evil, but God's willingness to allow the freedom of choice opened the door for it to become a reality. God knew beforehand that one-third of the angels would join with Satan in his prideful rebellion and desire to be like God. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. He also knew that humanity would fall into lawlessness or sin when Satan used lies and deceptions to fool Eve, who in turn caused Adam to disobey God's one simple command to not eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. As God's authorized ruler of earth, Adam's deliberate decision to obey Satan instead of God caused a change in Adam and Eve's natures. He and Eve not only lost their innocence, purity, and fellowship with God, they and their future descendants acquired a new tendency toward lawless sin and disobedience toward God. When Adam did this, he forfeited his position as Earth's authorized ruler and turned it over to Satan, who has been the God of this world ever since, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and John 12.31. You see, because God knew this would happen, he set his long-range plan to restore his fellowship with fallen humanity in motion. Oh, humans still have the freedom to obey or disobey God's revealed will that is found in the Bible. They may choose to believe or disbelieve the gospel message that offers restoration. The fallen angels, or demons, have not been given this choice. Their rebellious natures are permanently fixed as they join with Satan in his desire to maintain his control over the earth. Why God did not provide a means of salvation for fallen angels was a decision that lies in his wisdom that we can't fully fathom at this time. Instead, God chose to use them throughout earth's history in his unfolding plan to demonstrate how fallen humanity can be restored in spite of demonic attempts to derail God's plan throughout history. Today, God is using the church to demonstrate his wisdom to angels, Ephesians 3.10. He does this by allowing both fallen and unfallen angels to observe his dealings with human beings, for they can see the spiritual battle that is going on behind the scenes taking place on earth that are invisible to the human eye. For Paul wrote, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He wrote that to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 12. Now, as I reflect back over the past 50 plus years, I continue to see his plan progressing toward the coming of our Lord for all true believers 
in what is called the rapture. Increasingly, I am being asked if I believe that Christ will soon come and gather his bride to himself. Paul gave us some answers in the second letter to the first century believers in the church of Thessalonica. There he provides a key to help us understand why increasing lawlessness actually may be the precursor of a sequence of prophesied events. There Paul wrote, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away, literally, except there come the apostasy first. And that man, or literally again, that the man of sin may be revealed, the son of perdition. Paul wrote that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Believers of the Thessalonian church were troubled because they thought that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, was about to take place and they would have to go through it. Paul assured them that this was not the case. In this passage, he tells them about three signs or indicators that will be observable just prior to the tribulation. This passage also begins to answer our questions regarding the rapture and the increasing lawlessness of our day. The first sign or indicator. Paul told them that a falling away would take place prior to the rapture and the subsequent tribulation. He says, for that day, the tribulation now, shall not come except there come, or literally, the falling away first. You see, the Greek word for falling away is apatasia, from which we get our word apostasy. And the definite article, the, in front of apostasy, indicates that this will not be just general apostasy that has happened throughout ages at different times in the churches, but rather a uniquely significant one, the apostasy. Yes, apostasy has always been a problem for the church, according to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. And Jude warned believers to be on guard for it and to earnestly contend for the faith in Jude 3. But in this passage, Paul indicates that this false teaching or doctrine would be the greatest apostasy of the church age. Now, prior to the rapture, it may permeate the church to such an extent that it is no longer obeying the Great Commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, the gospel of salvation, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why the Father sends his Son for his bride, the church, at this time, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. You see, the church will be removed because she no longer is holding to sound doctrine or fulfilling her purpose. You might want to consult Romans 11, 19 to 23 to see that concept. 
Thus, we would anticipate apostasy increasing more and more within the church as the rapture and the tribulation draw nearer. Thus, the first sign indicating the nearness of the rapture and tribulation is the great apostasy throughout the church. Now, the second sign or indicator is found in verse 1 of chapter 2, where Paul's words say, By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. You see, he assured the Thessalonians that the rapture of the church would take place before the tribulation. This phrase could also be translated, on account of the soon coming presence of the Lord. I like that, the coming presence of the Lord. This Greek New Testament word for coming is often used to indicate a future prophetic event, and in this passage, the rapture. Paul had already taught the Thessalonians about the rapture in his first letter when he told them to comfort one another with these words. For he said, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. The Thessalonians knew about the rapture, but they needed to know its timing in relation to the tribulation. And they needed assurance that they wouldn't go through it. Although many believers who lack discernment will accept the erroneous teaching of the apostasy, others who are more discerning will not. Nevertheless, the Lord in his mercy and grace will come for all true believers and deliver them from the wrath to come. For the Lord says through Paul, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day, that's the tribulation, should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope that's a sure expectation of salvation. Notice carefully now, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, that's the tribulation, but to obtain salvation, that's deliverance from the wrath by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 9. Thus, the second sign is the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation. Now, the third sign or indicator. In chapter 2, verse 3, the appearance of the Antichrist and the removal of the restraint of the Holy Spirit is the third sign that precedes the tribulation. For we read that the man of sin will be revealed, the son of partition. Some early manuscripts say that man of lawlessness, choosing the word lawlessness instead of the man of sin, be revealed the son of partition. See, so sin and lawlessness are linked together. Now, when the church is removed, notice the Holy Spirit's restraining influence will be absent from the world. 
For the Holy Spirit indwells and works through believers during the church age. Paul explains this as he carries on in verses 6 and 7. And know ye what withholdeth or is restraining, that he, the Antichrist, might be revealed in his time? For the mystery, a hidden truth of iniquity, doth already work. Only he, that's the Holy Spirit, who now letteth, and literally means to hold back, will let or hold back until he, the Spirit, be taken out of the way or is removed. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. When Paul wrote that he, the Antichrist, might be revealed in his time, he could only mean the time of the tribulation. The Antichrist will not be identifiable during the church age, so don't look and point and say, that's the Antichrist. You can't know. But he will become very apparent shortly after the rapture. Now, the church won't be on the earth after the rapture when this sign appears. Although the workings of iniquity that will eventually lead to his appearance on the world stage are already present, according to 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, his identity is a mystery that is hidden from us today. The unsaved now who remain behind and enter into this post-rapture apostate church era will easily be deluded by the false Christ, the Antichrist, when he first appears. He will be offering peace and prosperity to a world in turmoil. His amazing abilities will enable him to successfully negotiate a covenant, Daniel 9.27, in the Middle East between Israel and her Arab neighbors. As a result, Israel will be permitted to rebuild her temple and begin offering sacrifices unmolested at her altar in Jerusalem. The signing of this covenant signals the start of the seven-year tribulation. Thus, the third sign is the appearance of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the removal of the restraint of the Holy Spirit with the taking of the church just prior to the start of the tribulation. During the present church age, believers are to serve as salt and light in the world by spreading the saving light of the gospel of salvation and opposing sin through the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. When the majority of believers no longer are walking in the Spirit, but instead are quenching the Spirit, then worldliness and apostasy inevitably will enter the church and the world outside will then grow darker and more lawlessness. In verses 6 and 7, Paul told the Thessalonians the Holy Spirit will restrain the full fruition of sin until the Spirit's restraint is removed along with the church at the rapture. When the church leaves, the Holy Spirit's restraining action will end. When sin is fully ripe for harvest or for the judgment of the tribulation, the Antichrist will appear on the world scene. He will be the embodiment of lawlessness and rebellion against God. At first, however, he will be viewed as a God-sent peacemaker with solutions for all the earth's problems. His amazing abilities will come from Satan, 
who gives him power and charismatic influence. At the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan will indwell and totally control him. Now, I believe that we are witnessing the final unique apostasy of the church that reflects and contributes to the lawlessness within our culture today. I urge you, we cannot stick our heads in the sand and deny that these are not the very last days of the church age. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul wrote that we are to and now know. Now grammatically we need to understand this word we are to know is a command. So Paul is commanding us. We are to know also that in the last days perilous or dangerous times shall come. We can't ignore what is happening around us. Remember, we are commanded to know. Obviously, if I'm correct, it is only natural to wonder why today's lawlessness differs from the lawlessness of the past. The fallen nature of human beings has not altered from then until now. It is neither better nor worse. As mentioned earlier, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit through the church-age believers has increasingly been quenched as the world's values and influences have infiltrated the church and been adopted by believers. External distinctions, such as moral behavior, modesty, and humility, often are absent and have been replaced by the politically correct acceptance of sin, immodesty, and pride. For example, more and more Christians approve of drinking alcoholic beverages. Such drinking was once considered ungodly and something a spirit-filled Christian should abstain from, according to Ephesians 5.18. Here, in Greenville, South Carolina, once considered to be the buckle of the Bible Belt, a hymn-singing and beer-drinking venue called Hymns and Hops has grown from a gathering of about 80 people to 1,000 in just two years. Their stated goal is to, and I quote, create a space for families and people to celebrate the gospel through community song and drink, end quote. Their website proclaims their motto, and I quote again, sing loud, die happy, end quote. And a website testimonial says, and I quote, there's nothing like worship at a brewery, end quote. I've had people ask me, is Hymns and Hops trying to start a movement? And that makes me laugh because we're not looking to start a movement, but we're joining a movement. We're joining a movement that was started over 2,000 years ago by a guy named Jesus. Something about combining a worship environment with enjoying the better parts of life, which is fellowship and beer. This growing acceptance began when Christian schools started yielding to student pressures to drop their prohibition on drinking. Beginning in 2003, Wheaton College, once a fundamental school, began to allow drinking, smoking, and dancing for graduate students and faculty. In 2013, Moody Bible Institute of Chicago dropped their rules about tobacco and alcohol. And in 2014, Dallas Theological Seminary followed. Sadly, these schools actually are reflecting the changing attitude of students and their families and have compromised their formal biblically-based standards to draw more students.
In many instances, church worship services have been transformed to make them resemble entertainment venues. The Apostle John warned believers against the tendency to compromise biblical standards with worldliness when he wrote of the last time or hour of the church age and that final antichrist who shall come. John wrote, Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time, or the last hour, literally. And as you have heard that after Christ shall come, even now there are many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. That's 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. Yes, the world's influence saturates our culture and is difficult to discern and resist without the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit. This is why the church's preaching and teaching ministries are so vitally important. For we can only know God's will, obey his commands, and follow his leading if we are personally reading the scriptures and hearing it accurately and clearly preached and taught in our churches. Sadly, this is often not the case. For much of the preaching heard today is weak in biblical teaching, exhortation, and sound doctrine. But, it is strong in relevant topics that please the ears of the listeners. Paul warned of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Preaching of this sort produces believers who are weak in the faith and lack discernment. Expository preaching that carefully explains the scriptures and gives understanding to the hearers is fading away as older pastors retire and are replaced by younger men who have been taught to mimic motivational speakers seen on public television and on the internet. The preaching of motivational, relevant sermons is the trend in many churches today. The speaker's ability to keep the congregation's attention and to please his hearers largely depend on his personality, oh, the topics he chooses, and the stories he tells. For the most part, these topics focus on interpersonal relationships and social issues. Now, if the Bible is used in the message, it may include only a few verses. They're just scattered throughout the scriptures and often taken out of context as proof texts. Messages that enable the hearers to understand God's relationship to his creation, his marvelous unfolding plan for Earth's history, that's prophecy, and the redemption of sinful human beings, redemption, are rarely, if ever, preached. You see, expository preaching requires serious, in-depth study of the scriptures by the pastor before presenting it to his people. Motivational relevant preaching is much easier to prepare and removes the burden of time-consuming sermon preparation that is required for an 
expository message. Most Bible schools no longer teach men how to follow the biblical pattern for preaching that is taught and demonstrated by Ezra, where we read that Ezra read in the book in the law of God distinctly, that means clearly, and gave the sense, that means the meaning or the insight of that sense, and caused them, the people, to understand the reading, Nehemiah 8.8. 8. Giving the sense or meaning of the scriptures cannot come from motivational preaching. It requires thoughtful preparation, great prayer, and the Holy Spirit's help to give insight to the preacher and understanding to the hearers. Unfortunately, many church boards and church members believe that traditional worship and expository preaching are outdated and are driving people away especially young adults. Consequently, they pressure pastors to do whatever is necessary to bring people into the church. The world's mantra is, the ends justify the means. Whatever must be done to produce the desired result is fine, even if the means employed to attain the ends were once considered to be unethical. Businesses, politicians, and advertising agencies, etc., have adopted this policy in our world today, and many churches have also adopted it. Today, the churches are more like businesses that use marketing techniques to draw customers. Many believers no longer depend on the Holy Spirit to help them go into the world to reach the lost and to bring them into the church through witness testimony, and the Word of God. Instead, they depend on business mimicking methods to bring people in to fill the pews. In many instances, they come to the church and they find it is just like what they are familiar with in the world, for there's no difference. The sermons give them what they want to hear instead of the life and destiny-changing messages that they need to hear. Yes, these techniques make them feel comfortable, but they remain lost for eternity. A church's success is not measured by numbers, but by the increasing maturity, spirituality, and godliness of its people. Pastors and church leaders need to recognize that in these final days of the church age, Numbers will decline as lawlessness grows outside the church and pressures to conform to the world increases. Again, Paul warned against this when he wrote, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's Romans 12 verse 2. Pastors need to preach the entire word of God clearly and boldly and contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, Jude 3. It was delivered to the saints in order to guard the church from apostasy. Paul warned to Timothy about this when he said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound or healthy, wholesome doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, that means to hear for mere gratification, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables or fictitious teaching. 
I've given a few examples of the world's influences infiltrating the church and pressuring pastors and church leaders to compromise biblically based standards for personal behavior, worship and preaching and teaching styles. When I consider all these changes seen in the churches during my lifetime, I truly believe that we are witnessing the final unique apostasy of the church that contributes to the lawlessness within our culture today. I have given this overview because Paul commanded us to know of and recognize these dangerous last days of the church age. For we can't ignore it when it comes. Now in part two of our series, I will examine the two prime consequences of this great apostasy in the church today and offer three steps we, that's you and I, can do to counter its influence in our churches, our families, and our world. Please join me then in part two. Now until we meet again, may the Lord bless you mightily and I will see you either here or in the air.